During the 2012 London Olympics, the company Nike launched a series of commercials that left a mark on, on the Olympics. And some uh, who, who were writing about the Olympics, who were covering it, uh, said that Nike even, to some degree, stole away the thunder of, of the games. And the first commercial in this series that they launched was, was a captivating 30-second um, video commercial of a boy who was jogging. A young boy jogging at the crack of dawn. And obviously to, to uh, somebody watching this, the boy, it was not, jogging was not something that he was used to doing. He was not wearing the, the, the uh, typical clothes that a jogger would wear. He was not the typical shape that a jogger would be. But you could tell from looking at his face that he was dedicated. And he, he was struggling to, 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 to jog and to run and to, to succeed. And after a few moments of just seeing this boy running towards the camera, the narrator started and said this, Greatness, it's just something we made up. Somehow, we have come to believe that greatness is a gift, reserved for a chosen few, for prodigies, for superstars. And the rest of us can only stand by watching. You can forget that. Greatness is not some rare DNA strand, not some precious thing. Greatness is no more unique to us than breathing. We are all capable of it. All of us. And then the words flashed on the screen with the big Nike swoosh below it saying, Find your greatness. Do you think of yourself as great? Often we, we think of greatness with a good life, right? With a happy life, with, with an influential and powerful life. You know, we look to people who, who we see as great in our culture or society. Maybe somebody like LeBron James or Meghan Markle. Or we look to people in history like uh, Sir John A. Macdonald. These are great people. These are influential and powerful people. But what about us? See, Nike is trying to convince us that we are great, that we deserve to think of ourselves as great. But is it true? Are they right? And if it is true, why am I great? What about me makes me great? You see, in this passage, Jesus is talking about greatness. What does that look like? And he says at the end of the passage, something that kind of sums up this, this whole thing. He says that I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Isn't this a type of greatness, an abundant life? And so we need to pay attention here. This is important. First of all, we need to pay attention because we can't escape the fact that people like Nike tell us how we should live or what we should live for. It's something we can't avoid. This happens to us every single day that we live. But secondly, we need to see that the message of Jesus here, the life that he offers us, is so unique and irresistible. A life of true greatness. So we're going to talk about that this morning under two headings. First, the thief, and second, the shepherd savior. The thief and the shepherd savior. 
So first, the thief. This passage actually begins in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with the Jewish religious leaders. The Pharisees, uh, the group of, of religious leaders that uh, uh, Jesus is kind of in a, in, a, um, in, a, in, a, in a conversation, in a struggle with, is these are the movers and the shakers in, in Jewish culture. They're, they're the people who are important. The people that when they walk by, everybody gets out of the way for and uh, Jesus gets in trouble with them because he's healed a man on the Sabbath. Just in the passage before, we, we see that Jesus has, has healed someone who was blind, blind from birth. And, and it was done on the Sabbath day. And, and the problem with this is that healing someone was considered work. And work was something that, that a Jew was not supposed to do on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus, by healing this blind man, upset the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he upset them a lot. And they call him out for it. Now we may think to ourselves, you know, what's the big deal? Like Jesus did something really good here. Can't the Pharisees see that? Can't they see that Jesus actually did something powerfully amazing to this boy and changed his life? You know, we can think that the Pharisees are way off on this, but we have to look deeper and ask ourselves the question, why are they responding the way that they did? You see, the Pharisees were a group of people who believed that God would send the Messiah, God would redeem Israel, God would give them the abundant life of greatness that he promised to them when, and only when, they got their ducks in a row, when they finally obeyed the law well. And so for these Pharisees who are seeing Jesus heal on the Sabbath, he is getting in between them and the abundant life. The abundant life for them, the life of greatness, was obedience. And so Jesus tells them a story. He uses an image that would have been familiar, very familiar to people who were listening to him, the image of a sheep pen. Now, I can t admit to you this morning that I think the only time I've really seen a sheep pen is at the Royal Winter Fair in Toronto, and that's probably not a really good representation of what Jesus is talking about here. And so I had to do a little bit of digging into what is this sheep pen image that Jesus is trying to get across. And some commentators on the Bible um, helped me out, and they said basically that, you know, in Jesus' time, it was expensive to build a pen for sheep. And so because it was so common for people to own a flock, that a lot of people in villages would get together and they would say to each other, hey, you have sheep, Bob, and you have sheep, Doug, and, and you have, have sheep, Sally. Why don't we get together and build one big pen for all of our sheep? And that way we can put them all in there, hire somebody who can be the gatekeeper. We read about that in this passage. And, and then, you know, it'll, 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 be, it'll be a good setup. It'll be cheaper than each of us doing it on our own. We can collaborate. And so that's what they did. They would, oftentimes a village would have a large communal sheep pen that everyone would put their sheep in and there would be a, somebody watching the gate, letting only those who had sheep in that pen in to lead them out. Now you ask yourself the question, you know, aren't sheep all white? <laughs> right? Wouldn't this get a little bit confusing to people who, you know, they throw all their sheep in the pen. How are you going to know who's our Sally's and who's our Doug's and who's our Bob's? Well, Jesus tells us, the shepherd leads them out because the sheep know his voice. In other words, it isn't up to the shepherd to recognize the sheep. It's up to the sheep to recognize the voice of the shepherd. Because the sheep know the shepherd, 
They couldn't get mixed up. The shepherd loves the sheep. The, the, the shepherd leads the sheep. The shepherd cares for the sheep. And so the sheep follow the voice of the shepherd. But life is not always simple inside the pen. There's always a danger in these communal sheep pens. Because of their size, it was possible for somebody to sneak in through the back door. A thief. Someone to climb the fence, to get into the pen another way and lead the sheep out for his or her profit. Thieves and robbers, they weren't looking after the sheep. They were looking after themselves. Jesus offers this warning to the Pharisees that says to them, You are the thief. You are leading people astray. You are the thieves and the robbers entering through the back door because you're blind to the things of God. But here's the kicker. Most of the Pharisees weren't actually trying to do this. They weren't trying to sneak in through the back door. They weren't trying to lead people astray. Instead, they deeply desired to obey and follow God and the law above all things. They, they made obedience greatness. Obedience is the key to the abundant life because that's what they thought God wanted from them. And this is actually what leads them away from God. We can ask ourselves, how does this work? Why is this the case? And it's because, I can tell you a story about why. Have you ever wanted something really badly from your parents? And you know that if you have any hope of getting it, if you have any hope of getting the thing that you desire, that you have to be on your best behavior. That you have to make sure that you follow every single thing that your parents say so that you can get them on your side, so that you can convince them that they should get you the thing you want. For me, I remember one of these instances was when I wanted to get a paintball gun. And looking back on it, I can't even imagine why my parents even thought about this idea. I mean, like having three boys running around with paintball guns does not, does not seem like it would lower anxiety in a household. Uh, but, so, but I wanted this so badly that I listened so closely to everything that my parents said for over a month. I took out the garbage. I was nice to my siblings. I listened to them well. I made my bed every single morning. All of these things that I didn't normally follow so closely, I was so attentive to. I was being obedient. I was doing what my parents wanted me to do, right? That was, that was good. That was a good thing. But guess what? My motivation was way off. It was selfish. It was, I was only listening to them because I wanted something for myself, not because I loved my parents and wanted to obey them and serve them and please them above all things. See, what the Pharisees were, were stuck on is that they couldn't get over the fact that God doesn't just want our obedience. He wants our trust, our hearts. He wants our full allegiance. He wants full access to our lives so that he can be our shepherd and lead us. You see, what the Pharisees didn't realize is that they can't actually be the obedient people that they longed to be. They couldn't find the abundant life through obedience because they would always come up short. Jesus actually mentions this in the, in the, Matthew, Matthew, um, the Sermon on the Mount, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. He, he ups the law in a way to say to everyone, every Jew listening, you can't do it alone. You need to admit that you need a Savior. You need to admit that you need to trust in Jesus. 
because as Psalm 23 tells us, he is the one who leads us through the valleys. We aren't the ones who do it. After this story from Jesus, the Pharisees don't understand what he's talking about. And so he uses a different illustration. And uh, in this passage, these two illustrations, these two stories are actually separate from each other. The, the imagery is different. Although they share the same image of the sheep and the pen, the meaning, meaning is different between the two of them. And so in the second illustration, Jesus shows that he is the shepherd savior. And he tells a story about him being the gate. The gate. What does it mean that, that Jesus is the gate? Well, I remember going to Disney World uh, for the first time and only time in my life. And as you know, you're walking up to, to Disney World and my eyes, you know, they look up and you see this castle, this, this huge castle in front of you. And you, see, you, you can start to smell all the, the delicious food the deep fried food, and you can, you can start to hear the sounds of, of happy children on rides or meeting, you know, all the princesses and, and all the things that are, I don't know much about Disney World, as you can tell, but it's a place that where all your dreams come true. And what stood in our way between the abundant life ahead of us in the magical kingdom and where we were standing right now was a gate. And we came up to the gate and we had to show a ticket. A ticket that, that would be stamped and would lead the person at the booth to stand back and to, to let us through and to say to us, welcome to Disney World. Right? Every abundant life, there's a gate that we have to pass through. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that no matter what your idea of the good life is, there is always one of these there's always a gate. In the Nike ad that I started this sermon with, Nike is telling us that greatness, that being truly great, having your life really matter, or being happy, is something that we are all capable of when we just have to find it. But the question still remains, who stands at the gate of our greatness? Who defines what is great and what is not? Is it up to me? Is it up to my family? Right? Is it up to my friends? Who stands at the gate? Who is the gate? You know, what if uh, the abundant life for you, what if the, the image of the good life that you, that you think of is being beautiful? Or being seen as somebody who is physically beautiful? Who's the gate into that abundant life? Is it your Instagram followers? Right? Is, it, is it your friends who tell you? Is it the mirror that you look into every single morning? What about if, if your abundant life, if, if, if the picture of greatness for you is a successful career, who, who stands at that gate? Who is that gate? Is it the number on your salary? Is it the amount of letters before your name? Is it the, the different people that you can look to and say, I know I'm successful because I'm, I'm doing better than that person and that person? And that person. What if for you greatness is having a, a family with kids that listens to you, right? Who, who, you know, you can look at family pictures and be proud of. Who stands at that gate? Who are you comparing yourself to that you can look back and say, my family is great? Jesus says it plainly. 
I am the gate. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me is saved. When Jesus claims, claims to be the gate, he, he's saying that if you don't enter the abundant life through me and me alone, what you always look to will let you down. But notice that Jesus doesn't just say, I open the gate or I am the gatekeeper. No, he says, I am the gate. I am the gate. And this is the irresistible gospel. This is the key to this passage. And because a commentator I was reading put it like this, and it opened my eyes. He said, you know, someone once told me of a conversation they had with a Palestinian shepherd. One who would have been trained in the way of shepherding. That was passed down from generation to generation in Palestine. The place where Jesus would, would have been familiar with their culture. And he said, he said this. He, he was, this commentator was looking at a sheep pen with the four walls and a way in. He said, this is where they go at night? The shepherd replied, yes. And when they go in there, they are perfectly safe. But there is no door, I said. And then the shepherd replied, I am the door. What do you mean, I said. The shepherd went on and said, when the light is gone, and all the sheep are inside, I lie in the open space. And no sheep ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. This is what Jesus is saying to us. I am the gate. I have come to protect you at night. I have come to lead you out by day. I will always be there for you. I will always give you the best that I can. I won't let anything take you out of my arms of love. I am the gate for you, not because you've earned it or because you deserve it, but because of my burning and deep love that will never, ever relent. See, a shepherd who lies as the gate to the sheep, who puts their life on the line for their flock is not an ordinary shepherd. It's a shepherd who has a, a, a deep interest and, 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 and uh, longs to protect their flock. They'll do anything that they can to keep them safe. This is the type of shepherd that God is for us. See, how does this make you feel that the God who created the world cares for us this much that he would put his own life on the line to give us this abundant life. But is he good for it? Right, that's the question. How do we know that when the wolves come, that Jesus will be true to what he says? How do we know? Because it happened. Peter tells us that the enemy came. When Christ died on the cross, he put himself in the crossfire for us. He took the bullet for us. He, he did what this shepherd said that the shepherd would do, would protect the sheep. See, this is what it took for Christ to be the gate, the shepherd who cares so deeply about the, the abundant life for his sheep that he was willing to sacrifice his own he put himself on the cross so that we don't have to go there, so that we don't have to fear death, 
so that we can be welcomed into the arms of God. But the gospel doesn't end there because it's not just death that Christ defeated. He also, he also gave us everything else we could ever dream of. See, we as Christians, through Christ, can look forward to the restoration of all things. Tim Keller says that the resurrection body means that we do not merely receive a consolation for this life we've lost, but a restoration of it. The, Christian, the gospel for the Christian is a restoration of all things. See, Keller goes on, he says, we do not only get the bodies and lives we had, but the bodies and lives we wished for, but never received. We get a glorious, perfect, unimaginably rich life in a renewed material world. We get a glorious, perfect, unimaginably rich life in a renewed material world. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and rose, when he rose again from the dead. See, this, the gospel gives us the abundant life that is not only in this world, it is beyond this world. It's no wonder that the early Christians respond to this abundant life they receive through devoting themselves through giving themselves to Jesus, laying themselves at his feet. Right, the picture in that, the Acts chapter 2 reading that we had this, this morning is of the early Christians seeing the abundant life not as something that can be bought or worn or earned, but something that they've already received that has freed them to respond to it with generosity and freedom. So we can leave this place this morning as confident people in Christ, knowing that he goes before us as our good shepherd and guides us, that he goes behind us as our good shepherd and protects us, that he goes up beside us as our good shepherd and befriends us. He goes beneath us to support us, and so we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of what goes on in our world. We can have confidence because Christ, Christ has defeated sin and death. And so we can go into our world as Christians who can preach a different message. Greatness, greatness comes through knowing Christ, knowing that he will stop at nothing to save us. Let's pray. Father, as we gather today virtually again, we pray that you fill us with your spirit. Your spirit that is a witness to us and an encouragement for us to the abundant life that you give us through Jesus. Help us to see clearly in ourselves and in our world the people, the places, and the things that ask too much of us and offer too little for us. Give us the trust we need to let you lead us into the best pasture that you have for us, the best protection from things that we need, from things that seek to destroy us or our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.